When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied, so be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, Elisha. The Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. The company of the prophets at Jericho went up to Elisha and asked him, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied, so be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed... Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You've asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet, if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. As they were walking along and talking together, Suddenly, a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. The company of the prophets from Jericho who were watching said, The spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. And they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Look, they said, we, your servants, have 50 able men. Let them go and look for your master. Perhaps the spirit of the Lord has picked him up and set him down on some mountain or in some valley. No, Elisha replied, do not send them. But they persisted until he was too embarrassed to refuse. So he said, send them. And they sent 50 men who searched for three days, but did not find him. 
When they returned to Elisha, who was staying in Jericho, he said to them, Didn't I tell you not to go? The people of the city said to Elisha, Look, look, our Lord, this town is well situated, as you can see, but the water is bad and the land is unproductive. Bring me a new bowl, he said, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the spring and threw the salt into it, saying, This is what the Lord says. I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained pure to this day, according to the word that Elisha had spoken. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, Baldy, they said. Get out of here, Baldy. He turned round, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And he went on to Mount Carmel and from there returned to Samaria. Super. Thanks, Val, for reading. And evening, everyone. Uh, it's great to see you all. Um, let's just pray before we get stuck into things and ask for God's help as we delve into this passage. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the privilege it is uh, to read your words, to hear from you this evening. Lord, I pray you would help me speak clearly and faithfully. Lord, and I pray you'd help us all have hearts and minds that are willing to, to listen and be changed as you speak to us. Uh, Lord, to so help us all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, this evening we are starting a new series in the book of Two Kings, uh, and it seems particularly apt that we're thinking about chariots of fire. I know it certainly felt like every time I've stepped into the car this week, it's felt like stepping into a chariot of fire. Um, But in this passage we're going to see here tonight, as you can see on the screen, there are some incredible things happening. Uh, We see chariots of fire, we see rivers split in two, we see the healing of a water source, and we see some young men mauled by some bears, right? So there's no sort of shortage of excitement going on here. Uh, But before we get stuck into the the nuts and bolts of this passage, uh, let me just set the scene for a moment of of what's happening at this point in the Bible. Um, So here, we're we're after the reign of King David, after the the golden age of the people of Israel. Uh, After David, there was this successive lines of kings who were just um, awful, Um, They were leading the people astray. They weren't being faithful to the covenant promises that God had made to them. And they'd worshipped other gods. Uh, And through that, they'd caused the the nation of Israel to be split in two, uh, into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, And so because all these kings, these rulers, were were a bit of a nightmare, God had sent prophets, uh, raising up prophets to, to speak on his behalf, to do the job that the kings weren't doing, uh, to remind them of their um, covenant with him, uh, to call them back from their waywardness, uh, and to remind them of who God was. Uh, and so 1 and 2 Kings basically uh, mainly focuses on the northern kingdom, Israel, uh, and of the two most prominent prophets there, Elijah and Elisha. 
Now, the Lord had done, uh, in the book of 1 Kings, we see the Lord had done some incredible things through Elijah, uh, incredible miracles, but his main role was, was prophesying uh, against uh, the wicked King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, who were uh, rulers there, uh, on the sort of downfall of their family, but also on um, judgment of the people of Israel, uh, judgment that was coming if they were to stay in their rebellion of God. Uh, and so we, as we arrive at this passage here at the beginning of 2 Kings, it will be somewhere around sort of 850 BC, uh, we see this moment where Elijah passes on the baton of being the prophet to Elisha. And I think as we look through this, there are, there are kind of three key things that we learn about uh, Elisha here as he gets passed on from Elijah. The first thing is we see Elijah is the true successor to Elijah. Now, keep your Bibles open, flick back a couple of pages, back to 1 Kings chapter 19. Uh, And what we read here is that we already know that Elijah is on his way out. Um, Have a flick back if you see. Uh, And we see this this scenario in uh, in 1 Kings 19 where Elijah's basically chased out of the country. Um, He's he's been chased out by King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. He he runs off uh, to Mount Horeb and and he complains to God that his whole mission has been a disaster. He says, the people keep breaking their covenant. They're not listening to me. My whole ministry is in vain. Uh, And he basically just gives up and even claims that, Lord, uh, I want to die. He's in a bit of a bad place. Uh, But the Lord has other ideas. He he provides for Elijah there uh, and tells him that he needs to appoint a successor um, who will be called Elisha. Uh, but if you've got that passage open there, look at what the Lord says about Elisha in, uh, in 19 verse 16. Let me read it. So the Lord speaking to Elijah. Also, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from, Mount, from Abel Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Haziel. And Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Now, you see, Elisha wasn't going to be the same kind of prophet as Elijah. Elijah was all about warning the people about what was going to happen. But Elisha here, well, we're told he's almost going to be a a judge. He's almost like an assassin. He's going to come and put people to the sword. That's quite a scary prospect for someone who's going to be a successor, right? If, if um, one of Boris's successors came and said, oh, I'm going to put lots of people to the sword, he wouldn't be getting many votes, would they? Right? It's quite a scary prospect. But Elijah obeys. He takes Elisha as his apprentice. And so knowing that, knowing what's already come there, I think it helps explain what's going on at the beginning of this passage here. Look at verse 1, back in uh, chapter 2. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. So here we have Elijah and Elisha. They're on their way from this place called Gilgal. And it looks like Elijah is trying to shake Elisha off. He tells him, right, wait here. I've got to go ahead to another town. But Elijah sticks with him. Look at verse 2. Elisha says, As surely as the Lord lives, and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And as you follow through, this, this happens again and again. They get to Bethel. Elijah tries to get rid of him, but no, they stick together. The same happens when they come to Jericho. You see, it seems like Elijah's trying to get rid of him. 
And now, you could look at this as Elijah trying to test Elisha here, seeing if he really is loyal enough, seeing if he really is up to the task of being his successor. Uh, And there's probably some truth in that. But I think this is much more about Elijah being a bit worried about what is to come. See, Elisha has been told that he's going to come and bring judgment. He's going to put people to the sword. And so I think it's much more likely that Elijah's saying, oh, goodness me, can I just try and put this off a little bit? Oh, Elijah, you stay here. I'll carry on. Uh, he wants to give the people more of a chance to, to turn back, to repent, and to not face this judgment that is coming from Elisha. But Elisha's not having any of it. As we see, God's, God's plan for this successor can't be changed or manipulated by this other prophet. No, Elisha really is going to be the successor here. And so as we carry on, we follow them to the banks of the River Jordan, both Elijah and Elisha. And there were these 50 other prophets there who also, they know that Elijah's on his way out. Don't quite know how they know, but they know there's this group of people knowing what's going to happen. Let's carry on and see what happens. Look down to verse 8. So they approached the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. And there's this this amazing miracle of splitting the river Jordan in two. Um, But Elijah had done miracles before. For him, this was nothing new. He'd done some incredible things. So it wouldn't have been much of a surprise to the people there. Uh, But they cross. Elijah turns to Elisha and asks in verse 9, Tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken away? And Elisha responds, Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. Now, it's important to note here that Elisha isn't asking for for double the amount of power that Elijah has here. Now, it's more like he's asking to to fully inherit the power that he has. Uh, The language of this double portion um, refers back to the inheritance that the eldest son would get from his father, uh, that that first portion. So he's really asking, can I inherit fully what you have to, to fully take in this new role of being God's prophet? And in response, you see, Elijah says, well, you've asked a, you've asked a difficult thing. Uh, not that it was going to be difficult to make this happen, but this job, this role of being God prophet would be difficult. It will be challenging. It will be hard work. It's a difficult job to do, but look at verse 10. Look what Elijah says. Yet if you see me when I'm taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. And after he says that, these glorious chariots of fire appear. They split the two of them and they whisk Elijah away in a whirlwind and leave Elisha there on his own. I mean, Elisha's there to to witness this incredible moment. And I can't even begin to understand what that must look like, what that must have been to experience this glorious picture coming through. He's there to witness Elijah being taken away as a sign that he, Elisha, is now the one in charge. We see Elisha take up his cloak, and just to prove that this passing on of the baton really has happened, what does he do? Well, he takes his cloak, and he also parts the River Jordan and walks all the way back through. But as we read, for the prophets, they don't seem to get that this big transfer has taken place. 
Um, they, they, they question Elisha, and they eventually go off and start searching for three days to try and find Elijah. See, they're, they're clinging on to him. They haven't understood that now Elisha is the man. Eventually they come back, they find Elisha saying, I told you so, <laughs> Elijah's gone. It's me now. And so all, all of this kind of first part, all of what we've just seen proves that Elisha really is the true successor to Elijah. We've seen God decree it in 1 Kings 19. We've seen Elisha stick by him, even though Elijah's trying to, to test him or to run away. We've seen Elisha witness Elijah being taken away, and then he quite literally takes up his mantle to do the same job. He's gifted with that same power. You see, that there could be no doubt, really, as, as for the people then, that this is what's happened. Elisha is now the big dog in charge. Elisha is God's key prophet. And you see, throughout this, this just proves how, how much God is in control of this situation, how he is sovereign, how, how what he says will happen. He told Elijah that this would be the case and he proves it by keeping Elisha by his side. Uh, and even then, it, it can be argued that this is kind of a surprise handover. Now, Elijah doesn't just die. It's not just an accident. No, God <laughs> swoops in and takes him away to show that this is really him here. This is God in charge of this. It's his decree that Elisha is the man to take over. God instigated this and it shows that he is in control throughout and that's a big theme of this book of of one and two kings that God is sovereign that what he speaks will come to pass and that he is in control but as we look at this sort of small part of the big story it does show that he's in control but there are also links here to show that God is in control of the whole of history See, as, as we had that read and as we've gone through it, I wonder if there's a few sort of light bulbs that have gone on in your mind as we've read that. Uh, place names, people, things that have happened, right, that might trigger, trigger a memory of another part of the Bible. See, the reason why there's so much um, specificity here is because that this scenario points back and it points forward. See, it points back to two of the greatest heroes in Israel's history, Moses and Joshua, and it points forward to John the Baptist and Jesus. Right? Now, now, you might think that's a little bit far-fetched. Right? How can we see that here? But, but come with me. Let me show you how this picture here, it just fits everything together. Right? It's wonderful. And it's some serious proof here that the whole of the Bible is one big, interconnected, wonderful story. Firstly, look again at the, at the journey that Elijah and Elisha take. It's kind of retelling the story of God's people's entry into the promised land, following from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho. That's the journey that was made beforehand. You see, Moses had led the people through the wilderness, establishing God's covenant with them, reminding them of it. And that's exactly what Elijah was doing, wandering through the desert, reminding the people of their covenant with God. And in fact, it was when we saw Elijah on Mount Horeb, when God, God told him to take Elisha as his successor. And Mount Horeb was where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. See the connections? But not only that, what was Moses most well known for doing? He was going and parting the Red Sea, leading God's people out. And what does Elijah do here? He does the very same to the River Jordan. 
Can you, you see what's happening here? We've got Elijah is like Moses. Elijah is almost a, a second Moses. And just as Moses passes on his leadership to God's people, um, of God's people onto Joshua, Joshua, who then leads the people across the River Jordan into the promised land. So Elijah passes his role onto Elisha, who also miraculously crosses the River Jordan. See the connection there? And even the journey that Elisha takes following this is the same as Joshua, Jericho, Bethel, Gilgal. And you see, not, not only that, right, there's more. Their names, Joshua and Elisha, mean the same thing. God saves. And so Elisha here is like a, a second Joshua. You see, here is a, it's another picture of God's amazing saving work of his people hundreds of years later. To the people then, and the way this has been written down is to help us see that this is another instance of God saving his people. We see, we've seen that link back. But what about a link forward? Well, the very last verse of the Old Testament tells us that uh, Elijah will return. Uh, in, in Malachi chapter 4, it says this, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So does he? Does, does Elijah return? Well, this is where it gets, it gets even more incredible. Can you think of anyone else that, like Elijah, dresses in animal skins, wanders through a desert and warns God's people of coming judgment? Who is it? Someone shout it John the Baptist. Yeah. You see, and, and Jesus even himself in Matthew chapter 17, he says that Elijah has already come, talking about John the Baptist. So we see that John the Baptist is like a second Elijah. And who comes after John? Who does John make a way for? Oh, Jesus, who himself comes down and receives the Spirit of God, God where? On the banks of the River Jordan, just like Elisha. That same Jesus whose name means God saves, just like Joshua and Elijah. Elisha. Can you see how many similarities there are here? I mean, I mean it's quite, it seems quite ridiculous, really. There's so many wonderful connections. This is far too specific just to be a coincidence. I think this is one of the most important chapters that we can look at to help us see that the arrival of Jesus and who he is and who was was predicted all the way along. This has been all part of God's plan. See, Jesus arrives and shows that he is the ultimate saviour and judge. And it has been foreshadowed throughout the whole Old Testament and so, so clearly here. This is a, a wonderful big piece of the puzzle. Now, you see, this kind of thing, I absolutely love this, right? This, this gets me so excited. And, and that might not be the, the case for you, but can we at least think about what this really means? This does mean that it can give us so much confidence that the whole Bible is one big, wonderful, interconnected story. And it all leads up 
to Jesus. And it shows beyond doubt that God has been in control the whole way through. It's not coincidence. This is all planned. See, for, for so many years, I wrote off the Old Testament as being just some ancient history that was complicated and a bit odd, and it was maybe sometimes a bit interesting, but oh, just get me to Jesus. Get me to the New Testament. That's what really matters. And I don't know how you find it, but I sometimes struggle to, to have this big picture of the Bible, to, to piece all these bits together, to wonder how does this really all fit in? Maybe you feel like, a bit like that too. But then having spent time looking at this, seeing how wonderfully interconnected it is, how, how can it not be true? How can this not be planned and orchestrated by our Heavenly Father? I mean, it, it, it thrills me to see how this all is pieced together. And, and I hope it does for you too. And it can give us such confidence that God is in control, that he is sovereign. He's sovereign in the big picture of the Bible and he's sovereign in all the big and small ways in our lives too. That God does have a plan to save his people. That even in the messiness of the day then, in the messiness of our lives now, he is sovereign, he's on the throne and he is still in control. Which means that every time we, we look at our, the leadership changes going on in our world, leadership changes in, in church, and, and all the things that are going on, that we don't have to be worried or afraid or scared. Because as we, we've seen here and as we see throughout history, God is in control. He is sovereign. And we might go through difficult times, but we see God uses people in, in their brokenness and messiness to complete his plans. And what a comfort that is and and this also gives us real confidence in the word of God in the Bible even the bits that seem a bit strange even though the bits their bits are complicated and hard to understand they all point to Jesus all of it every single passage can be tied together in this wonderful big story leading us to Jesus It's a a challenge, isn't it, to to make sure every time we come to God's word, no matter what part of it is, to to just be overjoyed at what it teaches us, to see how it can bring us to Jesus, how it all fits together. I wonder if that will drive us all to a greater and deeper love for his word, to see how wonderful and powerful it is. So we see that Elisha really is the true successor to Elijah. But Jesus is the ultimate and true successor, the one that this whole passage points towards. Now, I know there's a lot there. There's my diagram that might be helpful. It might not. But I hope they, that's helped to see how this is all interconnected in one big picture. But, but for our last bit of time this evening, uh, let's home in on these next two things that happen in this story. The two first things that Elisha does as he's taken up this mantle is he is now God's chosen prophet. Let's see, the first thing we see is that we see Elisha the saviour. So what does Elisha do? Well, the first thing we see him do is he, he, he gets up and, and heads to the city of Jericho. Let's read what happens. Start with me at verse 19. The people of the city said to Elisha, Look, our Lord, this town is well situated, as you can see, but the water is bad and the land is unproductive. That sounds like they're in a bit of a mess here, right? 
No water, which would mean no crops, no food, no way to live. It would have been absolutely desperate times in this city. In fact, a, a more accurate translation of unproductive is causing miscarriage. Now, whether that's actually literal or, or figuratively, it was still a place of death, this city. A place of death and suffering. But what does the Lord do? Well, he brings Elijah to, Elisha to step in. He throws some salt into the spring. And what does the Lord do? Look at verse 21. This is what the Lord says. I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained pure to this day, according to the word Elisha had spoken. See, the Lord brings around clean water in the city, taking them from death and dehydration to to life. It was a city in a, in a desperate state. But God, through Elisha, brings life. It's a wonderful picture here of, of God's mercy. But, but what's even more incredible is where this all takes place. Now, the fact this takes place in Jericho. Now, if you know your Old Testament, Jericho was the first place the Lord's people came to when they entered the promised land with Joshua. Uh, led by Joshua, they arrived. The Lord said, in order to take the city, you've got to walk around it uh, every single day for a week. And they do. And then the Lord delivers it into their hands. They defeat their enemies. But after this had happened, Joshua decreed that the city was never to be built up again. Uh, it was to be left as a, as a reminder uh, of what God had done for them. But yet, here it is. <laughs> the city is back it's as if the people have said, well, actually, we're just going to do our own thing now. It was, a, again, a picture of their constant rebellion against God. It was like a big slap in the face to him. We've forgotten what you've done for us in the past. We're going to build this city and live here and do what we want. And so it, it seems a bit mad that the first thing Elisha would do is to bring life and save this city. Remember, this is Elisha, the one that was supposed to come and judge and bring death. But here he is bringing life. See, God shows such great kindness through Elisha when all the people really deserved was death. Why? Well, look at it again. Look at verse 19. Look how the people respond to him. They say, look, our Lord. You see, they accepted him for being Lord. They accepted him from be for being the very word of God as his prophet. Because they accepted him, they were saved. Isn't that just a wonderful picture of, of God's love? Displaying kindness even to those who oppose him. That's what the, the good news of the gospel is. It's, it's God bringing life to all those who are once against him bringing life through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to you and I. That's what God does. He's in the business of bringing life where there was once death. See, we see that demonstrated here in a city which almost stands as a monument to the people's rejection of God. And we see that even more clearly in Jesus, who, as it says in Ephesians 2, when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, God made us alive in Christ because of his incredible mercy and grace to us. Just like the people then, he brings life even when we were dead in our sins. 
See, Elisha's ministry, as we're going to see in these following weeks, is he consistently does, and surprisingly does, bring life, but only to small groups of people at a very specific time. But Jesus offers life to all forever. What a saviour he is. But he isn't just a saviour. The final thing we're going to see about Elisha is also the judge. Now let me read these last few verses from verse 23. Strange verses, but I think there's something really important we can learn from them. Let me read from verse 23 to the end. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, Baldy, they said. Get out of here, Baldy. He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And he went on to Mount Carmel and from there returned to Samaria. I mean, this is, <laughs> it's a bit mad, this, isn't it? It just seems so bizarre. Elisha, who's just saved the lives of everyone in a city, suddenly just causes 42 boys to be killed by some wild bears. I mean, what, what is going on here? It seems brutal. It seems so unnecessary. I don't think if I called out Alan for being, for being bald, he'd think that that was a worthy punishment for me, right? It would be, it would be ridiculous. At least I hope not, anyway. <laughs> but what's really important to note here, again, is, is the, the location of where this takes place. As you see, it was going up to Bethel. See, Bethel was a place where Jeroboam, who was one of those wicked kings, had set up a temple to worship a golden calf. It was a place that, even before that, was supposed to be the house of God where the ark could rest hundreds of years before. Now was a temple to a golden calf. So, so again, kind of like Jericho, it was almost symbolic, again, of the people's rejection of God. But see, the real key difference here is the fact that this group of boys reject Elisha and at the same time, in the same essence, reject the word of God. At Jericho, and he was welcomed as our Lord and here he's told to jog on. And so as Elijah said throughout his ministry and as Elisha proves here, a rejection of God, a rejection of his word and his prophet will bring judgment. And that judgment is death that's it's really easy at times isn't it to forget that judgment is a reality isn't it as Christians we love to say that that we've been saved and we've been given life and freedom and purpose and that is all wonderful and it is true but it's only so wonderful because what the flip side of that is It's only so wonderful because the flip side of that is facing judgment, facing the righteous wrath of God and and facing eternal separation from him. We've got to make sure that we don't lose sight of God's holiness and his rightful wrath on our rejection of him. If we do, we lose some real impact of what the gospel says. Uh, and even again, in the same vein, we like to think that sometimes that, that Jesus is the one who came to sort of quell or suppress God's anger against his people. But actually, 
like Elisha here, Jesus is the great judge. At least that's what John the Baptist says in Matthew chapter 3. He says, as talking about Jesus, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. See, Jesus is certainly the great savior. I don't think any of us would have a problem with saying that. But we've got to remember that he is the great judge. And when he does return, well, there's a question, isn't it? What, what side will we be on? Will we be the wheat or the chaff? What side will your family and friends and neighbors be on? See, the Bible is very clear. You can't just sit on the fence. You're either in or you're out. And it's a challenge to all of us. It's a challenge we thought about this morning. And it helped us see that there is a choice to make. But I think this can challenge us uh, as Christians in another way. See, I know so often I need to be reminded of the reality of judgment. Because I know in, in my attempts of evangelism to, to share the gospel with others, I try so often to, to make it look like trusting Jesus is about bringing meaning and purpose and joy. Which, of course, it, it does. But what's more pressing is that the reality is without a relationship with Jesus, judgment is coming. And if we truly love the people that we we spend our lives with, will we let them know that that's what the Bible teaches? Will we let the reality of coming judgment spur us on to a greater boldness in our evangelism? I don't mean standing on a street corner and and shouting and screaming that everyone's going to hell, but lovingly telling people what the Bible teaches. If we leave out the reality of judgment, then where is the urgency for people to turn back? See, if we leave out the difficult reality of judgment, then we're in danger of diluting the urgency of the news of Jesus. It's definitely worth taking some time to to see the people in your life, the people that you love, and seeing them in that light. It's really challenged me over this last week to to be more urgent in my prayers, to be more bold in speaking. Because if this is true, then it really matters how we live in response to this. It's not about making us feel guilty, but just making us see the urgency of the message that we've been so privileged to have been given. See, judgment is coming. Jesus will return. Will we be ready? Will we welcome him as Lord, as the people at Jericho, or will we turn our backs and tell him to jog on like the youths at Bethel? See, this passage as as an introduction to these next few weeks as we continue to dig in to Elisha's ministry helps us see that it is God who is in control of all of this, that he is sovereign, that this is all part of his great salvation plan. It's helped us see how this part fits into the whole Bible, but it also helps us see this picture of Elisha being some sort of predecessor to Jesus, one who does come to save, to bring life, but also one who comes to judge. Why don't you just take a a moment now as we finish to to reflect on some of this? 
Can we pray in your hearts to thank God for this wonderful book that we have, the great story of all history that all links together so perfectly because he is in control and he is in charge. To give thanks for the, the wonderful saving work of the Lord Jesus, but also to pray and to see the urgency of the mission that we have to go and share the gospel. Take a moment now to reflect and pray in your own hearts and then I'll close in prayer to finish. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for your word, Lord. Thank you that as we see here in this passage, Lord, we see that it's just a wonderful story of your work throughout history to bring about a way to save your people. Lord, thank you that we see that so clearly here in this passing on from Elijah to Elisha that points us forward to Jesus, him taking up his mission to to save and ultimately to judge. Lord, I pray that you would always help us remember as Christians what we have been saved from. Lord, to help us see what our friends and family and colleagues are facing if they don't turn to Jesus. Lord, I pray that would help spur us on to be bold in our prayers, to be bold in our efforts to share the good news with them. But Lord, again, help us to find real joy knowing the life that you give, giving life to us when we were so undeserving, continuing to give life as we are so undeserving and giving us life with you forever. Lord, I pray that would give us a real joy. Lord, so help us now as we, as we come to reminding ourselves of what the Lord Jesus did for us on the cross. Lord, help us to love him and see him more clearly. Amen.